for listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now present an encore presentation of Carmelite Conversations. Well, welcome to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. I'm Francis Harry, and I am the co-host with Mark Danis. Unfortunately, he's not in the studio tonight. Uh, perhaps there's a chance he'll get to call in. We're going to continue the discussion. Yes. Hello. Can you hear me? Is that Mark? It is. How are you? Oh, I am so blessed. I'm so glad to hear your voice. <laughs> well, I'm uh, actually I'm sitting in a hotel room in Washington D.C., uh, but uh, I thought we'd see if we could make the connection this evening. How is it sounding? It sounds really good. Okay. Um, okay. Just, well, uh, well, God has blessed us. We're going to have a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to let you lead this one, Francis. You've got. Uh, all the material in front of you and uh, uh, know the direction that you want to pursue with finishing this book. It's a terrific book. Uh, I'm going to let you uh, begin as you do each week in prayer and then reintroduce the book and then we can uh, just talk about it. All right. I have picked the prayer um, that we used last week, only this time I'm going to do a longer version. It comes from St. Teresa of Avila's The Book of Her Life. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. O infinite goodness of my God, for it seems to me I see that such is the way you are and the way I am. O delight of angels, when I see this, I desire to be completely consumed in loving you. How certainly you do suffer the one who suffers to be with you. O what a good friend you make, my Lord. How you proceed by favoring and enduring. You wait for the other to adapt to your nature and in the meanwhile, you put up with his. You take into account, my Lord, the times when he loves you, and in one instant of repentance, you forget their offenses. I've seen this clearly myself. I do not know, my Creator, why it is that everyone does not strive to reach you through this special friendship, and why those who are wicked, who are not conformed to your will, do not, in order that you make them good, allow you to be with them at least two hours each day, even though they may not be with you, but with a thousand disturbances from worldly cares and thoughts. Through this effort they make to remain in such good company, for you see that in the beginning they cannot do more, nor afterwards sometimes. You, Lord, force the devils not to attack them, so that each day the devil's strength against them lessens, and you give them the victory over the devils. Yes, for you do not kill life of all lives, any of those who trust in you and desire you for friend, but you sustain the life of the body with more health, and you give life to the soul. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Francis. That's a great way to start us off. <clears throat> I actually wanted to... Uh identify a couple of the themes in that prayer, if you don't mind, that I think are the beginning point for uh, where we discussed uh, sort of picking up this week, and that's uh, where we left off, and that's the light of self-knowledge. I had noted in uh, some of our communication that you um, uh, had wanted to begin the conversation there. I think it's a good place to begin, and I think it's um, consistent with the, uh, the theme of the prayer that you just read, and that is the Lord's patience as he waits for us. The uh, book, of course, that we're discussing is Upon This Mountain by Mary McCormick, a Carmelite nun who lives in England. 
Uh, it is the fruit of 40 years of uh, her personal prayer life. But she takes us right back, Francis, to where St. Teresa uh, always points us, and that's this idea of self-knowledge and humility. And she, she emphasizes that, uh, I think, uh, rather strongly in this section, The Light of Self-Knowledge. Yes, and she actually says that truth is humility. Uh, knowing who we are and knowing who God is, that is a great truth, and that certainly puts us in a state of humility. <laughs> and God waits for us, as you prayed a moment ago in that prayer. Uh, God, of course, knows us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And he waits for us patiently as we go through these fits and starts, uh, which are the um, you know, circumstances of our everyday life. You know, we've said this so many times, Francis, in our previous conversations, that there's nothing inconsistent with the secular life and the pursuit of holiness or the opportunity to live the fullest extent of the contemplative life. God uses all the circumstances of our life, our uh, daily challenges with our uh, family members, where they whether they be spouse or children or close friends, our working relationships, our, our uh, difficulties at work, our uh, physical uh, challenges that we might endure, he uses all of these in his continuing effort uh, to get us to turn to him, to rely on him, to accept ourselves as we are, and to realize that even though we don't know who he is in his fullest uh, being, we can come to understand that we are his children, uh, that he always desires our good, and that the circumstances that he allows us to experience are all part of that master plan uh, that, if we allow them to work uh, in us, uh, can bring us to a state of holiness. Oh, that is so true and, and so wonderful, and, and you're setting us up so beautifully because what we covered last week was um, how about how to begin to pray and prayer as relationship as is written in this book by uh, Sister Mary McCormick. In fact, she talks a lot um, where we left off about we all have this deep yearning to be known and and loved as we truly are. But we also carry this idea that no one can really love who we truly are. And so we're torn behind, uh, between hiding and then revealing ourselves. But I think this journey, this, this spiritual journey into the heart of God is a road to a grace-filled authenticity. And, um, Mark, I'm sure you remember this analogy of St. John of the Cross and the log of wood on fire. Mm-hmm. Could, could you comment just a little bit on that image for us yeah. and how it relates to this? Sure. Yeah, one of the great images of uh, St. John of the Cross in his writings, he talks about, and we're all familiar with the image of a fire, um, uh, the logs burning and and then you throw a new log on, and for a period of time, there's sort of a billowing smoke and, and um, popping and wheezing and, uh, you know, some unpleasant things, perhaps, uh, that are being um, uh, removed from the log over a period of time. This is the analogy John uses for how we experience God's presence, the fire of love, as it draws nearer or we draw nearer to it it inevitably reveals the deep interior of our being with all of its beauty and its glory because we are made in the image of God. But at the same time, uh, both as a consequence of uh, the fall and concupiscence and what we have picked up 
uh, throughout the course of our life and what we may have experienced, may have uh, no fault of our own to no fault of our own, just simply experienced a trial and tribulation and difficulty and, and um, um, reacted to that. All of that comes to the surface. In what way? In selfishness, in anger at times, in uh, uh, doubt, both self-doubt and doubting God, in um, uh, uh, passions, <laughs> lack of patience. Um, we, we can develop, uh, as uh, our listeners are no doubt familiar, we can develop these you know, great uh, desires for certain things that we think will fill that need. All of that stuff bubbles to the surface in the imagery of John's burning log. But ultimately, if you look at the bottom of a fire, sort of towards the bottom of the structure, um, there appears to be this glowing, it's still part of the log, but there's this consistent, uh, continual glowing that is now um, no different than the fire itself. Uh, It looks exactly like the fire, and I'm talking now about, you know, the the embers uh, that are uh, uh, sitting as the base of the fire. There's no distinction between the two. This is what uh, John describes is our path to a union of wills, to the point where, and you use the word authenticity, that's, uh, I think, a very appropriate word, to the point where we become authentic human beings. What is an authentic human being? Where there's no separation between um, the created and the creator. The wills yes. are joined in union as the embers in the fire are uh, indistinguishable from the fire itself. It's really a very, well, uh, a, a very poignant analogy, I think. You explain that so beautifully. So, I mean, if if we're thinking about, you know, we're looking at this log and, and we're identifying with it, uh, when we're set on fire with this flame of love, you know, there's going to be some dark, smoky, smelly stuff, maybe some hissing and spitting, but in the end, <laughs> it's all very beautiful, and it's glowing, and it's beautiful. So, uh, this, you know, this is a confusing experience for so many people as uh, they approach this uh, part in the spiritual journey. So, you know, it's really important to recognize, and this is what uh, Sister McCormick says, it's important to recognize that it is not initially weakness or imperfection itself that's being driven out, but the falseness that would disown the reality of these. So it, it's like, you know, we first have to accept the truth of who we are in order to be purified. Because if we're in denial, we, we can't be helped. It's sort of, sort of like people on the um, uh, uh, 12-step program. You, you have to admit your weakness. And, and so this is a great thing for her to point out. And she goes on to say, human frailty of itself presents no obstacle to special friendship with Christ. I think that's very important. Let me repeat that. Human frailty of itself presents no obstacle to special friendship with Christ, a truth we strangely continue to resist, despite the combined authority of the gospel writers. So this block is the lie, and it's the inauthentic life, and it's surface life. So if we want to get... Um, cast out into the to the depth into the deep, then we have to um, know who we are before God, don't we? Yeah, you raise a really interesting point, and it's it's very important because you're right. This is where a lot of people uh, both lose what Teresa tells us we'll need, which is courage at this stage, uh, or they become discouraged, and the discouragement is misguided because, as as you just said, it is not the 
inevitable uh, deficiency in the human person, you know, our weakness and our, and our self-centeredness and our self-love and so forth. It is our protective shell that we've put over that reality, which may have, at some uh, level, uh, even um, uh, deluded us. In other words, we're not aware of it. We certainly put on masks for other people, many of those we're aware of. It's the ones that we ourselves are not aware of that become the most painful to remove. And in fact, uh, I'll draw this quote from her text as well. She says, when the action of God, usually again, she says, through life's circumstances, so no inconsistency between daily life and and the pursuit of holiness, when this exposes the self-protecting, self-serving motivation that has always looked behind the best we have done, this is a stripping indeed, she says. And this is the point that that initial removal is not, as so many of us think, uh, the removal of our bad habits, if you will, to make it simple. It is the removal of our delusion about our bad habits. And so you may be some months, years uh, into your prayer life and say, well, Lord, why am I still you know, so quick to lose my patience? Why am I so um, uh, self-centered, or why do I have this uh, lack of faith? Well, those things are inherent somewhat to our nature, and again, some acquired, but it isn't that um, reality that is what is separating us from God. God loves us um, despite, in fact, uh, um, oftentimes because of our very weakness, he embraces that, but it is our shell that we've put up which um, both protects us, but at the same time, uh, over time, can cause us to uh, fail to see those weaknesses in ourselves. And that's what has to be removed. That's the first level. And it does lead to a darkness. It does lead to confusion oftentimes in our prayer life. And we say, uh, gosh, I thought that my pursuit of holiness was all about my becoming holy. Well, no, it's about what you said, Francis. It's about becoming authentic. It's about humility. It's about accepting uh, who we are so that then God can begin to infuse his love, which is the only way any of this is ever healed, is through love. Um, but that can't be done until we get past the the self-deception. Yes. And, you know, in the midst of all this mess of ours, <laughs> God who loves us, he is hidden in our depths. But, you know, we ask ourselves, well, you know, if he's hidden there, well, why don't we meet him within and... St. John the Cross tells us, well, because God is hidden in our very depths, and the reason we don't encounter him is that we're not there. We're living on the surface, so we, we need to go hide with him in the depths. And so uh, I, I know Sister uh, McCormick uh, talks about this. Uh, the, the term she uses, this pattern of revision, which I really keyed in, and I thought that was really good. It's... Um, of the own truth of who you are and where God is. And, and this pattern of revision is repeated at deeper and deeper levels as our relationship grows more intimate. And it's sort of like, you know, the layers of an onion, you're peeling it back. Uh, and we want to get into the center. And so, you know, uh, a, a lot of this speaks to the dark night of the soul or the dark night of sins and spirit, which we've had on previous programs. But, you know, these dark nights are never just a spiritually pure, uh, a purely spiritual matter. They, they awful often involve, you know, life events. And, you know, so there's, uh, there's three spirits that John of the cross mentions, um, 
during this dark night of sins, which would be around this fourth mansion, if you're thinking of the interior uh, castle of St. Teresa of Avila, he said that these some of these spirits can come and attack people at this stage and, and makes them feel like they're worse than ever. And the three that he mentions, although there are, are others, but the three he keys in on are fornication, blasphemy, and confusion. Now, this comes from the first book of The Dark Night of the Soul. In this fornication, the wearing effects of prolonged loneliness or emotional hunger, as well as the actual experience of falling in love, can whip us up into a mighty storm. And then this blasphemy could but, be uh, buried uh, anger. I, I want to just uh, capitalize on the, on the fornication for a minute, because many people know that will be uh, perhaps misperceiving. The, the deeper level of this fornication is not what we uh, typically characterize it as in a worldly sense or a material sense. Uh, um, but this is where our love, our genuine love, is misguided. That's what, what fornication is, of course, is that our love is misdirected. It is misguided. Now, it may manifest itself, uh, as, as Sister says, it may manifest itself in a purely material uh, manner, but what, what she's really talking about is uh, the deep uh, center of our love, which the Lord is trying to purify, is misguided. It's somehow um, uh, off course and directed towards those things, which, of course, can never fulfill it. Uh, so, Well, and St. John of the Cross says this spirit of fornication, and I'm reading from the Dark Knight right now, mm-hmm. is given to some to buffet their senses with strong and abominable temptations and afflict their spirit with foul thoughts and very vivid images, which sometimes is a pain worse than death. And, and, and you know, you about, have no control over this. Yeah, we read about this, don't we, in, in, in the lives of some of the great saints. Uh, uh, the one who quickly comes to mind is Padre Pio, who suffered uh, through this um, uh, attack, if you will. And, of course, um, the objective is to remain faithful and prayerful and right. and, and uh, accept, as he eventually did when he came to understand it, through good spiritual guidance. You know, this was an attack. And so... Um, it, well, I think what we're trying to stress here, Francis, is our our listeners shouldn't be surprised if they're, you know, um, striving and, and working to deepen that relationship, and they find themselves genuinely falling in love with our Lord, which at the end of the day is what this is all about. It, yes. it is not inconceivable that they may experience um, desires that would try to pull them away from that. Uh, now, some of them may be internal to our nature, and the Lord has to surface those, and of course they have to be uh, removed. Um, and the only way to do that is to do battle with them, or some of them may be imposed by the enemy. You know, we may be uh, um, subject to an attack. But nonetheless, it, it, the important point here is what's most important is our love, our genuine love, is what becomes misguided in this um, experience of, of fornication, the, the attack here that uh, Sister is talking about. And the same thing applies to this blasphemous spirit, um, and, and, and it comes through the thoughts and the ideas. But, you know, you're not creating these thoughts. They're coming to you. So you, your response is a faith response of, of loving God in spite of this. And, and then the third uh, spirit well, that he are, mentioned was... Are you going to mention what St. Therese about her, her night of faith uh, as regards the challenge of blasphemy? Of course, um, in her later uh, years... She struggled in the last many months. She struggled with um, the uh, the simple issue of faith. 
know, this was the time of Nietzsche and, and atheism and, and uh, um, you know. Whether so heaven many, existed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and she struggled with that, and she was very open about it. Um, and she shared what she went through, and thankfully she did, because now we understand uh, both that this is a reality, even for saints, and we understand how to do battle with it. But I want to emphasize this point on this one, because I think it's so important, Francis. You and I did a series, uh, which I encourage our listeners to go back and, and perhaps take a listen to. We did a series on the Holy Face. And of course, Therese was very devoted to the Holy Face. The reason for the devotion to the Holy Face, was, which was instituted a number of times throughout the history of the Church, principally was to counter blasphemy, not just the uh, sort of political or or material blasphemy of those who attack the Church openly, but this spiritual blasphemy, the attack on a person's faith, or the, the challenge that we may go through in the spiritual realm with regard to faith. So uh, devotion to the Holy Face, which of course, thankfully, has uh, gained great traction in the last many years, again in the Church, um, is something that, uh, that we encourage our listeners to look into uh, and uh, and perhaps develop uh, uh, that devotion in your own spiritual life. Yeah, I remember Therese saying this was the inestimable coin, <laughs> yeah. so to uh, to offer to God. Right. All right, and that third spirit that Saint John the Cross mentions, and Sister um, McCormick brings up, is this loathsome spirit, uh, and she t- called it confusion, which you know comes from Isaiah. Spiritus vertiginis. Um, I'm not sure I'm doing my Latin correctly there, but that's from Isaiah 19:14. So this may be a um, spirit of confusion or scruples or perplexities, uh, you know, that really uh, keeps one uh, on the rocks, so to speak, uh, and they're having a hard time to trust. So in, in essence, they're having to make more acts of surrender and trust. Um, but, you know, God generally sends these storms and trials in this sensory night to help purge the soul um, so that, you know, once being chastised and buffeted, the senses and the faculties of the soul may gradually be exercised, you know, that spiritual exercise and prepared for union for union with God. And St. John the Cross says, for if a soul is not tempted, tried, and proved through temptations and trials, its senses will not be strengthened in preparation for wisdom. And it is said, therefore, in Ecclesiasticus, he who is not tempted, what does he know? And he who is not tried, what are the things he knows? So I think that is really good. Well, you had some other um, very... I'm going to have to uh, ask you, Francis, to keep an eye on the clock, because I'm too far away from my uh, computer, actually, to see what time it is. But uh, I know we'll want to take a break at the bottom of the hour. Um, so you'll well, let it me is, know. It is about time for our break now, Mark. Okay. Well, then I guess it's right <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Very good. We, so, Yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, why don't we hold that thought, um, and we'll come back after um, a five-minute break here. We'll come back at the bottom of the hour, and we'll continue this uh, conversation. I'm so glad we're having one <laughs> um, on um, Upon This Mountain by Sister Mary McCormick. So we'll be back in just a few minutes. Thank you.
Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The program you're currently listening to is a rebroadcast of Carmelite Conversations. Well, welcome back. Um, we were just talking about how God permits the soul to be stripped of its ego to come into this truth, um, which we know uh, from St. Teresa of Avila is to walk in truth, is to be uh, grounded in humility. And so God is waiting for us in the center of our soul, waiting for us. And when we can embrace our woundedness um, and uh, 
get away from our egos, then we are opening ourselves up to the mystery of God. And Sister McCormick says, where there is no longer any barrier between my essential self and the essence of God, there is union. And that's why all this struggle, because, you know, God is preparing the soul for this union, which starts in the fifth mansion with a, a simple union, a prayer of union. So um, we're going to go forward now um, into the chapter of uh, this book that uh, she calls Into Stillness, which uh, basically is going to be about how she prays and how we can also pray and how our Carmelite saints are teaching us to pray. So, Mark, are you still with us? I am. Okay, so you know where we're at, right? I I may have missed the when they connected me. I <laughs> okay, well, just a few, well, the first moment of what you said there. All right. Well, we're we're going to go into the stillness, into the okay. prayer, and y- you know, Sister McCormick says she's. I love this idea of how we begin prayer quite simply, trying to be real first. And I'm like, yes, you know, accept who you are. And, you know, whether that's you're a mess that day, you're distraught, or you're overjoyed, or you're bored out of your gourd, or, you know, whatever it is, um, you know, to to start to pray is to, um, you know, accept where you are. She says, uh, she was asked, how does she pray today? And she said, well, the short answer is it, it depends on what's happening. Prayer and life are inseparable and only become more so as life advances and prayer deepens. So in order to relate authentically with God, we need to be grounded in the truth of who we are and, and you know, where we are at that moment. You know, right. not where we want to be or where we could be right. or where we wish we were or be, but, but the reality of that present moment. And she says here, and this was a very interesting insight for me, I have to say, she says, Begin with the examination of conscience. Now, I've heard that many times, Francis. Uh, as you know, an uh, individual, uh, a priest who uh, we both uh, uh, value very highly for his spiritual guidance, uh, once said to me, um, oh, you should always begin prayer with an examination of conscience. And I just took that at face value, and I thought, well, he, he wants me to sort of clean out the, the closet before I start you know, <laughs> having my conversation with God. And Sister... Uh, would say, I think, in fact, she does here, no, 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 use the examination of conscience to, as you said, sort of get real. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> yeah. Catherine of Siena, whose feast we'll celebrate here uh, tomorrow, I believe. No, um, today. Today, uh, today is it? Sorry, that's right, today. Uh, said, um, um, you know, let, let's get things straight when we begin prayer. Let's remember that God is the, the one who is, and I, she says, am the one who is not outside of my, you know, existence in God. I, I, am, I am the one who is not. And, and that's a, a good mindset, I think, for us to enter prayer. Not, again, trying to build this persona um, around uh, who we want to be, Francis, as you just said a moment ago. It's, it's understandable that we as human beings would do this. We would say, well, this is what I want to be to you, God. I, I want to present this image. And Sister says, oh, stop already. Peel away all that, you know, persona and just be who and what you are in that day, restless, tired, angry, uh, doubtful, joyous, if you happen to be that, um, excited, you know, whatever. But just be, you know, be the real uh, person. And an examination of conscience is a good way to begin that. Yes, and this allowing of that 
moment of, of that present situation, your present condition, that is a good way to start prayer because you're identifying, you know, where you're at. And then she said another member of her community was asked where she prays, how she prays. And she said, I begin by listening to the silence of the chapel. Now, you know, that's a really good idea because once you get quieted yourself and, you know, accept where you are and whatever mood that is, and then you start to um, listen to your surroundings, uh, it helps you to grow still. And that is so important to be rooted um, in where you're at in order to come to prayer, don't you think? Yeah, and this idea of silence, of course, you know, Francis, in our conversations uh, over the many months now, we've talked about silence a great deal, and she is advocating that we begin with that exterior silence, the silence of the chapel, she suggests. And, of course, it's great if we can find ourselves in a situation, perhaps in a church, maybe there's a quiet a spot in our home, or maybe we go in nature and we listen to that silence. But ultimately what she's advocating is that we need to allow that silence to enter into the very center of our being so that we turn off the noise of everything that may have entered into our prayer experience. In other words, the the television and the newspaper we read and the conversation we had and maybe the contentious exchange we had with somebody all enters in, unfortunately, and it will take some time for us to sort of get below that surface into this silence that she talks about. Um, but, right. But, she goes on. She says, fully situated in time and space, I become aware of the rhythm of my own breathing. So she's going internally. So mm-hmm. she's giving us some, some nice steps here. You know, accept where you are, uh, listen for your surroundings, and then go interior and listen to your breathing. This is to help you quiet in, quiet yourself. And she says, I breathe in the silence. Oh, I really like that. I yeah. breathe in the silence and breathe into it at one with the silence and with the created world around me. And then she says, I repeat slowly a word of scripture uh, or maybe just like Abba or Father, just just to get really focused. And then she's going to take us with John of the Cross beyond concepts and images. And I know, Mark, you're really good about talking about this stillness, this silence within where you're, you're letting go and you're letting God. So I'm going to let you make that comment on um, John of the Cross and this a loving attentiveness to God with no desire to feel or understand any particular thing concerning him. Yeah, we have been told for so long now that when we get into contemplative prayer, now moving beyond meditation, where we actively engage the imagination, thought, imagery, and so on and so forth, it's a very active form of prayer, and a perfectly appropriate form of prayer. And some people stay with meditation for very long periods of time. Some people never leave it, and, and they achieve great levels of holiness with it. What John is talking about in moving beyond the imagery and the imagination and the uh, effort to uh, engage in dialogue in in a way that we might either speak the words or we would think the words that we were conversing with the Lord, he says we need to move beyond that. But some people uh, misperceive that as John saying, well, just total stillness, a blank page, there's nothing there. And that's not exactly the case. What he's really saying is we get a heightened sensitivity to our surroundings and a heightened awareness of the I am, 
of the being who we know is with us and loves us, as Teresa says, and that actually brings us into a silence. You know, we've um, used, or I've used this analogy, uh, Francis, in our conversations in the past, and I like it, and one, because everybody's familiar with the movie The Sound of Music, and also because I think it speaks to this issue and what this uh, sort of experience is like. But at the opening of that film, there's this imagery of what they um, want you to perceive as a bird flying over the mountains. And everybody, again, I presume is familiar with this. And there's this almost uh, eternal silence that echoes through the mountains and through the valleys which are pictured below. And that's the experience John is getting to. But in that experience, there's anything but a lack of attentiveness. You're very focused and very aware uh, of your surroundings because of the the beauty that comes out of that silence. And that's what John is talking about. We enter into this silence not so that everything goes blank, but so that we become very keenly aware uh, that we are in the Lord's presence and that He is with us. And, and that's, Yeah, uh, be filled with God. Exactly. Re- receive God's love. Yeah, that, that's the experience that, that Sister is advocating here, um, that, that we enter into. And this idea of presence, you know, we've taken this from uh, from Brother Lawrence, um, practicing the presence of God. Presence has two elements to it. It is acknowledging God's presence, that God is ever-present to us. We so often become distracted by uh, the, our surroundings, and we enter into our material experience of the world, and, and so we, we can lose touch with that. But we have to be reminded of God's presence. At the, uh, or, or I'm sorry, on the other hand, it is us being present to God, making ourselves present to Him in that moment. God, I'm here for you. I am aware of your presence, and I'm making myself present to you. And in all of my, you know, as we discussed a moment ago, in my joy, in my, my frustration, in my, um, you know, with all my deficiencies, whatever that might be, I'm making myself present to you, God. I simply want to commune with you. I, I want to be in your presence. I want to experience you in this way. Uh, and that is what we are talking about in contemplative prayer, a heightened sense of awareness of God's presence and being present to him. And there's a real letting go of control here. And and Sister McCormick does a good job of describing this. She's, she was saying that she had a hard time uh, learning to let go, and, and she found this to be um, a big struggle and um, great darkness. And she said she was reduced to such incapacity that in the time of prayer she could only be. And she said total darkness and spiritual immobility that seemed like inner death pervaded everything. She even stopped protesting. But then... And so this is good to know this, because if you're going through this in your prayer journey, you need to understand that this is a transition point. And, you know, you got to stay faithful and trusting. But she said very, very slowly, uh, as she stopped protesting, stopped uh, struggling, she became aware that now there was absolutely nothing between her raw reality and the utter reality of God. And she said any concept of God veiled him more than it conveyed him. And so her initial experience of this new knowledge of God, this mystery, was one of great loneliness. And and she's uh, really uh, 
wondering how to respond here. And in, at the same time, she says that the liturgy with its symbols and image um, came to the fore and also scripture seemed to become more and more alive. Um, so even though the prayer seemed formless, and of course, non-controlled, she was receiving a great deal. And, you know, how many times do we go to prayer thinking of receiving? I, I think most people approach prayer like, give me, give me, or help me, help me, right. uh, instead of, you know, um, thinking about, you know, God's looking at me, and I'm looking at God, and we're looking at each other, and, you know, we're we're really wanting the best for all of us. <laughs> and she- so this I- idea of receiving is so important. She echoes Teresa here where she says, you know, I, um, I, I forget the exact quote, but she talks about how um, her prayer really became uh, meaningful, powerful for her when she stopped struggling. And this is something, again, she's echoing uh, Teresa of Avila, uh, where she says, I stopped trying to sort of, in, in my own words, Francis, make it happen, right? Um, she just right. Uh, entered into that moment. Now, that takes time. We should not minimize the the uh, uh, struggle of getting through those various levels of distraction and of noise and of imagery that we will have brought into the prayer experience and that will uh, become um, a, a struggle to sort of move beyond. But we don't fight with it. We just sort of let it be. And she talks about that in the section on distractions. Um, but having won that battle and entering in, she says, I realized that when I could stop struggling at trying to pray well or trying to be something in prayer or trying to make sure I did it right, even even dispensing with the idea of a formula, even saying, well, I tried really hard to enter into silence, she stopped trying to enter in and she just sat. Um, she says here, I believe that very many people undervalue their prayer disparaging it at the very point where it no longer offers any obstacle to direct encounter with God. So in other words, she's saying many people get to this point and they they sort of experience discouragement. Well, nothing's happening. Well, the fact of the matter is something very powerful may be happening on a spiritual level. We may not be attuned to it, but we will see the manifestation of it in our life. And she uses this analogy that I've sometimes used. We take the phrase, well, don't don't just sit there, do something. And I say, well, actually, in prayer, the, the phrase would be, don't just do something, sit there. <laughs> and <laughs> yes. he says, sit there and just be, just be. This is, and John says this, too. He says, people will, will find it very hard. They'll think they're wasting their time. If I'm not actively engaging in some way, then I must not be accomplishing anything. And that's really the whole point. You've got to make yourself present. You've got to accept God's presence and let him begin to do the work. And for some, this comes earlier in their prayer experience. For others later, you can move into it and back out of it, uh, out of it to where uh, you do feel like you need to read, use the imagination a little bit. But, but we have to remember um, the most intimate of relationships that we may have had in our lives with a parent, a friend, a, a spouse, or what have you, um, Think back on that and, and remember, isn't it in those most silent moments when you're just with that person that there is a, a, a level of communication that goes beyond what would require words? That's what she's talking about here. It's tapping into the spiritual uh, communion uh, with our Lord. 
Right. And, and as you mentioned about distractions, there's, we've talked about that in the past, how, how to deal with distractions, but she also brings up about this sense of a distracted state that, you know, where there's actual resistance. And she says, sometimes you just have to bear with this. And just like a sculptor has a stone and the stone has to resist the sculptor's uh, carving in order for the carving to occur, uh, you know, because if it was like a, a bubble, it would pop. But it is stone, you know, so we have to be allow the Lord to chip away at ourselves, trusting. Um, and, and this is so good for us to learn to trust God in all his action with us. And and our job is to just do our best to favorably respond to his call. So, you know, at this time you just beg mercy, you know, when you ask for the intercession of all the saints to help you. Uh, but by all means, do not stop praying, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's the great risk, is that at any um, uh, stage along this journey, uh, we will be threatened with, we will come to the conclusion, well, I should just stop praying. I've said it to myself, well, I'm not praying well, uh, God's obviously displeased, I don't want to offend him anymore, so I'm going to stop praying. And that's the great lie. That's the, the, the uh, trap, in fact, that uh, Teresa of Avila fell into herself when she concluded that she wasn't praying well, therefore she shouldn't pray. Um, and that's the whole point. We are not going to pray well. We are not always going to be attentive. We're not always going to be present to the Lord. But we won't get any better by stopping altogether. Um, we've got to take that time. I don't, I don't think we can overemphasize this point, Francis. And, <clears throat> you know, we continue to talk about the significance of the prayer life and its consistency with the secular uh, life and our journey toward holiness, not in any way being impeded by the fact uh, that we live in the world as seculars, but uh, I don't think we can overemphasize two points. One is that 30 minutes, if it is in fact uh, 30 minutes for us, that 30 minutes that we spend in quiet prayer before the Lord or uh, even in that quiet room within our own home is the most important 30 minutes of our day. Now, I didn't say maybe, I said it is, and I, I, I won't... Uh, fear having a discussion with anybody about that. That 30 minutes of communing with our Creator is the single most important 30 minutes that we could possibly spend in our day, despite whatever else may be going on. It can also be done, of course, in a state of unceasing prayer through um, you know, continual dialogue and conversation with the Lord, but 30 minutes of dedicated time is very important. The second point is, time is important. Um, 30 minutes, in some cases, may not be enough, depending on how well we've prepared. And, of course, preparation begins hours before we enter that prayer uh, opportunity. But uh, depending on how well we've prepared, um, we may not find 30 minutes enough to experience um, silence or even in a meditative uh, form of prayer, uh, um, you know, a, a sense that we've really um, understood something that the Lord may be communicating to us. So making um, time every day and the amount of time we spend um, is quite important. And your little prayer before, I was, I'll have to uh, have you clarify where you got that, but you said up to two hours a day, and of course many of the spiritual yes. uh, masters um, do advocate uh, our Carmelite friars, as you know, spend two hours a day in prayer. Uh, that may be a challenge for many of us, but um, the point is a, a, um, the amount of time that we spend in prayer matters. It's important. Right. And that was from St. Teresa of Avila's Book of Her Life. The book of Her Life. But okay. you know, 
Yes. You're leading us into the next chapter uh, really beautifully, which is the apostolate of contemplation. Because, you know, we recognize that we're not drawn into this close embrace of intimate prayer just for ourselves, but that all prayer is apostolic. And St. Teresa of Jesus teaches us that, you know, good prayer re- results in good works. And St. John the Cross tells us one act of pure love is worth, you know, years <laughs> of other acts. Actions. So uh, it's very important for us now to understand that we're not wasting time when we're taking time to be with God. Uh, this is changing us and changing our hearts and gaining a more intimate relationship with him, which then affects our relationships with others and the actions we take and how we do those actions. And it pours out to the world. We pray, as you know, Francis, for as Carmelites, we have a special devotion to priests, so we pray for priests. Uh, I myself, and I know many others, have a devotion to souls in purgatory, and so uh, many of us will, will have devotions around uh, praying for souls in purgatory. Um, but whatever your particular devotion, y- your point is well made, and of course Teresa uh, makes this point as well, that we don't do this for ourselves. She uses this phrase, you know, we're the standard bearer. Uh, and the standard bearer may not be the one uh, like the priest or or uh, those who work as evangelists within the Catholic Church or who may have a very defined ministry, uh, we may not have that sort of ministry. In, fra- in fairness, Francis, not everybody gets to uh, have the blessing that we do of spending this time uh, in conversation every week on the radio. But nonetheless, we all have this ministry of prayer. And the significance of that ministry of prayer, of spreading that... Um, uh, love, if you will, throughout uh, the spiritual world is the most significant uh, work of an apostle that we could we could identify. Um, so much of what we do uh, on a social justice level, very important, schools and hospitals and ministries and healing and, and so forth, these are very important, but they're all undergirded, supported, and really made possible by prayer. So those friars and nuns who are, uh, 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 you know, uh, hidden behind the walls and spend, uh, you know, the, the vast majority of their lives communing with our Lord in prayer and interceding, uh, are the warriors who are really out there as the standard bearers carrying the flag uh, of the Church. And we individually, even as seculars, um, as lay people, uh, have that same call and can have that same ministry if we spend that time in prayer. And as you said, with St. Teresa of Avila talking about those who are in contemplative prayer as being the standard bearers, she believed that her nuns in prayer could more effectively strengthen the church in crisis than could the might of armies. And that comes from the way of perfection. And then St. John the Cross compares those who follow this path of prayer to a window through, through which the divine sun is shining. Shining, And so as the obstacles to the sunlight's passage are gradually removed, then the window becomes ever more transparent, allowing the burning radiance of God to fill the whole house with his light and his warmth and his grace. And then, of course, Therese, the little flower, her image is to be love in the heart of the church. And I just love that. Um, so uh, the fruit of contemplative prayer is a heart that widens to a universal embrace. That's the way Sister McCormick put it. I really love that. Fruit of contemplative prayer is a heart that widens to a universal embrace. 
Now, Mark, we've only got about two more minutes here. So um, can you give a, a, a little synopsis and then uh, tell our listeners what we're planning to do next week, and then we'll have a closing prayer. Yes, I, I will synopsize this way. I love this little book. It's only about 75 pages. Um, again, its title is Upon This Mountain. It is available on any of the major uh, booksellers that you can find online. I won't advertise for them, but uh, everybody would be familiar with uh, um, the um, the ways to purchase uh, books on the Internet. Uh, Mary and I posted it on Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so easy to find it on on Facebook, and then uh, all the details are there. Uh, but it's, um, I think, a very uh, concise, uh, but nonetheless very deep and very honest exploration into Carmelite prayer, um, the experience of growing in prayer, of growing in intimacy. She gives a number of very good recommendations, um, and let's uh, you know sort of close this idea where where we began. This is all about growing in love. This is all about purifying our love. This is about uh, intimacy with the Lord. There's nothing more complicated than that. You know, we make these um, um, conversations sometimes uh, deep because there are deep issues that we're dealing with, but at the, at the um, bottom of it all, what we're really talking about is purifying our love, coming into an intimate relationship with our Lord, a union of wills. And there are experts, those who've gone before us, who help us understand what that path looks like and can save us from perhaps some of the obstacles and the switchbacks. Um, it's been a great conversation, Francis. I've appreciated uh, both uh, uh, your insights as well as sisters in, in terms of deepening our, our prayer life. What we're going to uh, pick up on next week is, of course, this week we will celebrate the Feast of St. Joseph the Worker, which has a, a very special meaning for us in Carmel, and I'll talk about that along with Francis next week. But I would encourage two things. One, um, please join us for that conversation. And secondly, if you are of a mindset to do so, uh, join us in fasting in whatever way you define fast. Uh, but join us in fasting tomorrow prior to the celebration of St. Joseph the Worker on Wednesday of this week. Uh, again, we in Carmel uh, have great devotion both to St. Joseph and to St. Joseph the Worker. And we'll say more about that next week. Well, thank you, Mark. I am so grateful to God that you were able to call in and make this a true Carmelite conversation rather than some monologue. <laughs> so <laughs> well, I am I'm truly sure blessed. It would have been good either way, but uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Oh, Mark, you're so insightful, and I just love what you share with all of us, and I continue to learn um, even as we go through these conversations. So thank you so much, and I want to thank our listeners. And we're going to close with a prayer from St. Teresa of Avila that is so beautiful. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. O life who gives life to all, do not deny me this sweetest water that you promised to those who want it. I want it, Lord, and I beg for it, and I come to you. Don't hide yourself, Lord, from me, since you know my need, and that this water is the true medicine for a soul wounded with love of you. O Lord, how many kinds of fire there are in this life. Oh, how true it is that one should live in fear. Some kinds of fire consume the soul. Other kinds purify it that it might live ever rejoicing in you. O oh, living fonts from the wounds of my God, how you have flowed with great abundance for our sustenance, and how surely those who strive to sustain themselves with this divine liqueur will advance in the midst of the dangers of this life. 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So we want to thank you all for joining us at Carmelite Conversations, and we look forward to having another conversation with you next week, same time, same place. God bless, and pray, pray, pray. You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. The program you just heard was a rebroadcast of Carmelite Conversations, 